Hello, everyone. This is your friend, Ari in the Air. Hope you're doing well. As always, I know we're... I don't know, I feel like we're in some kind of novel right now. Day 42. My beard is getting longer. My hair hasn't been cut. The barber shop is empty. Leaves blow up and down the streets. Unattended by anyone. Today, I want to stream to you another podcast of mine, and I'm just going to do it live. Just going to do a live podcast for y'all here, because I have some things, some ideas that I want to share with you, and hello to my friends who are watching and clicking the little heart buttons who I love dearly. So... Do you remember when we were in middle school? Do you remember when we were kids and we had in science class, we had this assignment where they gave us an egg and they gave us like recycled two liter bottles and, and they, uh, you know, we had to use like these recycled materials to protect the egg so that we could drop the, the little contraption that we build from like a meter and when it hit the floor, the goal was the egg to be protected and to not break, right? It was kind of a fun project. And it just, it, it's funny because now I see this, this whole COVID thing that the goal, the egg is essentially society. We have this like this thing that we're trying to protect, that all of these systems, how we interact with each other, that there's some kind of frictionless system for us to interact and for us to live together. And the monolithic structures that we have in place to make these kinds of changes, such as the federal government, they are very unresponsive. They're very slow-moving, very bureaucratic. And it's like the goal now is we've got like a container full of people and we need to move the container one mile. That's our new egg. That's our new project. And so what we've decided to do is we fired up this monolithic train that is like miles and miles long. We turned all of the engines to full steam, full throttle. This thing starts pumping out black smoke, starts building up momentum. Finally, it interacts with this container full of people that we need to move one mile to protect ourselves from the coronavirus. And it hits the container full of people with such force that it knocks everyone on their asses. It whiplashes most of us and kills a few of us inside of the container. But you can't argue with the results. We are moving now towards point B that we have specified that is necessary, right? We are taking collective action and things are, things are happening. Well, at some point, the people who are inside the container, they see point B coming up and they... They say, hey, there, there's our stop. That's our stop. Like, we want off. 
Okay, let us off here. But this monolithic machine that has pushed us is like, it's still full power ahead, right? And so even if the movement that we've started in the government were to come off of the throttle and then even start applying the brakes, where the whole system comes to a stop is kind of a question, right? We don't really know. In reality, the things that I'm talking about are essentially here in Bend, Oregon, this beautiful little bubble that I live in, we don't have any COVID cases. Like I'm friends with a number of nurses at the hospital and they're like, yeah, it's pretty much business as usual at St. Charles here in Bend, right? We don't have a pandemic in Bend. And I'm not saying that's not because we've taken action or that the train has been moving our collective decisions in, uh, and collective action in a certain way. But um, I am saying that the things that New York needs to do to take care of its people and to respond to the pandemic is very different than what Ben needs to do. What New York City needs to do to take care of the pandemic is very different than what rural Idaho needs to do, right? Or like the Corn Alps of Indiana, you know, like, and, and that's kind of a testament to the size of our government in general and the size of our country, like 350 million people or even 400 million people. Like it's not a one size fits all thing, you know, like what New York city needs to do to take care of the pandemic and take care of its people can't be a blanket statement onto everyone. It's just ridiculous. It's like to say that rural Idahoans need to stop everything that they're doing in the same way that New York city needs to is like, it's crazy. It's just kind of crazy. And if you just think about the population density of these places, like I feel like our response ought be reflective of the population density, right? If, if you have something that is as dense as New York city, the reaction probably needs to be swifter and it needs to be harsher but like in the middle of America, like somewhere in Wyoming, like does everyone need to do the same things? And I know that as time has progressed with this whole thing, it's been really hard to know exactly. It's hard to know anything in the fucking information ecology that we live in. But what we need to do right now to protect ourselves and our families, it's changing every day. And it's having less and less to do with coronavirus and more and more to do with the transition between worlds that we're in, right? The chance that you get sick and die from coronavirus is going down by the second and may have been not as high as it was reported ever, right? Like the numbers may have been a little skewed there in the beginning, folks. Oops. Ha <laughs> ha Whoa. I don't necessarily think that there was nothing to be afraid of. I don't think that there was nothing to respond to, but I think it may have been a bit overblown, especially for people in rural America who kind of distanced themselves socially to begin with. 
We do not live in apartment buildings stacked on top of each other 70 stories high here like you do in New York City or in Wuhan or in all of China, which is a crazy place that I recommend you traveling to if you get the chance. You should check that out. But the point that I'm getting at here is we're now in a time between worlds, okay? There are people who have been paying close attention to our systems have been saying we're in a time between worlds for a number of years now. I mean, 2008 and our financial crash in 2008 was a pretty good indication that things are on the brink of some kind of change and a transition is very necessary. So I want to talk about that transition time right now, that transition between two worlds, between the old world of how we used to do things, game A, right? Where we fight each other for scarce resources and we compete with each other and a transition to what Daniel Schmachtenberger has coined game B, which is a non-competitive, cooperative, different way of having our needs met, a different way of having our motivations in line so that Um, our world takes a different shape, right? Because if you change the system without changing the underlying things that created the system, a new system just like it will pop up, right? Like if you take out one dictator without taking the the patterns of thought that created the dictatorship in the first place, another dictator will just rise in his place. And we know that just from history time and time again. So we're actually, our transition is actually in changing the fundamental ways of thinking, the patterns of thought that we all have. Like literally that is, that is the transition. That is the task at hand is changing our patterns of thought. And so while we are in this transitional time, it's very scary. Like don't kid yourself. If, if you're not afraid, you're not paying attention. Like you are absolutely not paying attention. Like everything is up in the air and there are powerful players out there who have made good moves to have asymmetric power and will likely continue to do so. But there are things that we can do personally and interpersonally that can aim us towards this game B, this new way, this more beautiful world that our hearts know is possible, right? And I want to kind of talk about what I think those things are, what we can be doing right now to manifest a better world instead of sinking down into some lower level of sub-personhood and sub-complexity where we actually go back to the Middle Ages where we just fight and starve, which is not good, okay? We actually don't want that. We have to, just like a caterpillar in chrysalis, we're either going to dissolve peacefully and reassemble into something that is more complex, or we are going to die by eating all of the leaves like a caterpillar does. So the first thing that I want to talk about is the seek of the seeking of certainty. And we are all 
looking for certainty in this. Like we are in a liminal space. We are in an unknown. We are in a transition. And that's not very comfortable. Our brains are wired to have a healthy disdain for ambiguity. We don't want to have a million options. We want to have clear options. We want to be able to make clear decisions, which that's a difficult thing to deal with right now when everything is up in the air, where everything is in the liminal and the uncertain, right? So the first thing I think that is important is recognizing your own search for certainty. You have to recognize it. Some examples of people seeking certainty that I see right now on the internet are Donald Trump being a moron. You're certain about Donald Trump being a moron. You're certain that he's stupid. That is some kind of certainty that people are clinging on to. There is certainty that people are doing it wrong, that they're not social distancing enough, that there's certainty that if we quarantine enough, hard enough, well enough, that we'll just come out of this on the other side and everything will go back to normal, right? There's other people who have been so skeptical of the government and the narratives for so long that the certainty that they're finding is in conspiracy theory. It's that 5G and mandatory vaccines and... All of these different things are the certainty that they are trying to grasp onto, that they're trying to hold onto right now. And I think that the it doesn't really matter what side of the narrative you choose to cling onto, whether you think that the political narrative or the conspiracy narrative or the spiritual narrative are the things that you're clinging on to. The thing that you have to recognize is your own search for certainty, that you are looking for something solid to hold on to right now as everything is a wash, right? It's not, I'm, I'm by no means shaming anyone for seeking certainty. This is something that is biologically ingrained in us. This is something that psychologically, like we have to have. Like no one has a girlfriend who's like, yeah, I might, dump you tomorrow, but let's talk about it tonight. Like that just like puts your nervous system on edge. You're like, Oh my God. Like, like we need some kind of certainty. We, our brains are built to try to predict the future, at least in some small way. And so I'm not shaming anyone for seeking certainty. I'm seeking certainty myself and I'm trying my best to recognize my search for certainty and to be with it. Right be with the, the unknowing, admitting that I don't know, admitting that I'm not sure what's going on, admitting that I don't really like, there's no way for me to know what happened in Wuhan, right? Like the chain of command that information has to go to from the object objective reality to get to my phone is like a chain that I don't wholly trust. It's a chain I don't wholly trust, and it's a chain I can't really vet. You know, like I can do my best to up level my own discernment and my own sense making so that I can try to make sense of the complex world. But like, that's a fucking uphill battle, man. Like, that's tough. So you got to ask yourself, like, how do you know what you believe is true? How do you know what you believe is true? If you think something is true, by what metrics are you using to actually vet and confirm that what you 
that your thoughts are actually true in the objective world, right? So we have to become more comfortable in the liminal. We have to become more comfortable in the uncertainty. Maybe not become more comfortable. Maybe we just have to accept it, that we're there. We just have to accept it, at least. We have to start by accepting that we are in the liminal, that we are in the uncertain, that we can't know, that we can't know a lot of things. We can't know the future. We can't even totally know what is going on in the objective world in coronavirus. Like that is, these are hard things to really, really know at a concrete level. The far side of that doesn't mean that you can't know anything, right? It's not that not, nothing is knowable, but it is that we have to both take our search for certainty into consideration as well as our ability to know things epistemologically. How do we know things are true? And those are two really important parts of this. So in general, I don't know if you've been listening to the podcast. I highly recommend it. It's airy in the air. It's on all of podcast platforms. And I have been interviewing about 20 people over the last three weeks who are permaculturalists, educational philosophers, um, philosophers, community builders, these amazing people. And the thing that I have distilled from all of these talks is, is this sentence that came as an epiphany that hit me in the head like a piece of wood the other day as I was riding my bike. And it was, self-reliance is the revolution. Self-reliance is the revolution. And I want to break that down a little bit. So the revolution that I'm talking about is the transition. The revolution that I'm talking about is this time in the liminal, in the unknown. It is not necessarily the solution at the far side of complexity. It is the transition phase. And self-reliance, I think, in general, is the answer. When I say self-reliance, I don't mean individualistic, because I don't necessarily think that you have context outside of humanity. Like, I don't exist without you. Like, I don't exist without Bend, without Oregon, without the United States, without North America, without the Pacific Ocean. Like, I don't exist without those things. Those are, ex like, those are existential context for me to exist. And so, self-reliance is not an idea of isolation. It's not an idea of being alone in the woods and fending for yourself tooth and nail. Self-reliance is more that we would tune into our own discernment, our own integrity, our own sense-making so that we can make sense of the world. We would tune into our own emotions, what's happening, what we feel. And we would make connections. Okay. And the connections we need to make are to our needs, right? This is a interesting topic because we have been so disconnected from our needs for so long, right? Like you need food. Everybody has a body and nobody can exist without a body, right? Every body needs to consume. So we all have to eat. So by being so disconnected from our food supply for so long, we kind of become disconnected from that really basic need. And so when I, the first type of connection that 
I want to talk about is with ourselves and our emotions, our feelings, our the way we are, our past, our traumas, all of this shit. This this is just personal growth. This is Socrates know thyself, right? Like this is just the basis of of growing up. This is the basis of maturity, right? Like adulthood, we have to kind of, in this transition, we need to rewrite what adulthood is. Because as far as I can tell, and as far as a lot of people can tell, is current adulthood is pretty fucking juvenile. It's pretty juvenile and and short-sighted, right? Like the fact that we're just like eating up all of our resources as fast as we possibly can only to just like shit them out in a fit of diarrhea because we can't actually take in as much as we think we can is a lack of maturity in adulthood. So we have to reinvent what, what modern adulthood, what modern personhood really means. So a connection to ourselves. The second layer of that is a connection to our communities. That literally means, let me give you an example. Over the last 10 years, we have seen social media change the way we relate to one another. And it has allowed us to relate to more people simultaneously, right? But in doing so, we have somewhat dissolved our ability to, or we have somewhat dissolved the depth of connection between one another, right? So like I have something like 2000 Facebook friends, but those are very shallow friends. And even though eight of them might be my close friends, there is still this ability to connect with more at a shallower level. And what we need to do is we need to, maybe we need to step away from social media for some time. And maybe we don't need to step away from it if we just focus on these real relationships, right? So you can imagine that the relationship with yourself is one small inner circle. Outside of that becomes like your partner, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your husband, your wife, that kind of thing. Outside of that is like your five closest friends or your eight closest friends. And this is when you're building these kind of connections, the goal is to have some kind of self-reliance that inside of this crew, you would have people who could support you emotionally, who could possibly support you financially, who could support you with growing your food or with your work or any of these things, right? Like if you think about the dark scenarios of the shit really, really hitting the fan, if we're all just like our own individual selves that we're trying to be very stuffy and stuck in our identities and we can't ask for help financially and we can't give help financially, we find ourselves in kind of an impasse, right? It's like, that's a dark place to be. Whereas like when the power turns off and you have like a crew of eight people in your community who your communication bandwidth is really high, where your relational bandwidth is really, really high, like there's a lot of trust and there's a lot of capacity. There's a lot of ability in your crew, let's call it, as Richard Bartlett calls it, a crew your three to eight closest friends who you really, really trust, who you really have spent time building a deep relationship with, who you can ask for money, who you can give money to, who you can watch their children, right? Who you can cook for, all these things. 
this is like imperative that you come out into the, this is the second ring outside of yourself, your partner, and now your crew. Okay. Third ring. So self-reliance is the revolution. When I say that, I mean that you with yourself, you with your partner, you with your community, and then once you have this eight-person to 12-person crew that is superhuman in their ability to take care of one another, like imagine an eight-person crew that is superhuman in their ability to take care of one another, emotionally, financially, with their food, with their water, with their needs, with their childcare, all this stuff, right? Eight to 12 people. I'm not saying that that's like all your needs, every single need needs to be met there, but you can just imagine how powerful having a really tight knit crew is in the liminal space that we're in, in the unknown, right? That's a really powerful thing. I know I've been talking about food a lot. That's been my spring project to grow a bunch of gardens. And I was reminded the other day by my friend who told me about Victory Gardens. And in World War I, the government actually made this thing called the Victory Gardens Commission. And essentially what had happened in Europe was all of the farmers had been recruited to be soldiers. All of the farmland had turned into battlefields. And so there's millions of people in Europe who were starving, right? Well, America started running this propaganda campaign to encourage people to take any spare land that they had that wasn't already agriculture and grow food on it. My dog is growling at me. Um, and to grow food on it. And the aim was to lower the needs of the local communities so that more of the food that was being produced by the farmers in America could be exported to support the allies in the war. Which is a really interesting, it has like a really interesting parallel to what we're going through right now. Because as I said, self-reliance is the revolution being able to meet our needs and meet the needs of our neighbors. One of my predictions in all of this is that we are likely to see, as the summer goes on, we are likely to see unemployment and poverty in places and in people that we aren't used to having, right? And so there is a huge, you know, like one of the most basic needs that we have is to put food on the table, right? And if you remember a couple of years ago when marijuana became legal, everyone started growing weed and then the price of weed just plummeted to essentially zero. Like a handful of weed was just free for anyone who lived in central Oregon, for sure. Like your buddy grew it or your buddy's buddy. It's just like we just the price of weed plummeted. And the same thing can happen with food, right? Like. In one of my most recent interviews with Shane Ward, this Australian permaculturalist and regenerative land use expert, he talks about how only 10% of people need to start growing gardens to have an overflowing abundance of food that can feed everyone, which is an amazing concept. 
And this victory gardens concept that came from World War One, I'm like, I want to like rename it Corona Victory. Corona Victory Gardens. This is the idea that we would start meeting our needs for ourselves and our neighbors. Because literally, like for me right now, I have a lot of spare time. I have, I'm very able-bodied. My mind is sharp and curious. And so I'm just, I've built like a dozen garden boxes and I'm volunteering to take them to people's houses, fill them up, put starts in them so that they can have a garden this year. Um, with the attempt, with the goal that there would be some kind of abundance midsummer and beyond for the people who would typically be scratching to feed their families, right? It's a pretty powerful thing. Self-reliance is the revolution. We're all seeking certainty and there are small things that we can do every day to kind of make us feel a little bit more secure. Having a big garden full of food, knowing that we won't starve is one of those things. So I got to go. I've got an 11. But thanks so much for tuning in today. If you like this podcast, share it, subscribe, leave a review. That really helps. Consider donating. That's paypal.me slash airy in the air. If you think that these are the kind of conversations we need to be having right now in this transitional time, then support me in my mission. I'm trying my best to uh, talk to the leading experts and the people who are really on the knife's edge of thinking about our future in the most positive way possible. We are trying to build the more beautiful world that our hearts know is possible, like Eisenstein writes. So... Thanks for your support. Really appreciate it. We'll see you on the next episode, everybody. Love ya. Peace.